in the next couple months into January, I'm going to be talking about the body of Christ and what it is and how it works and how it functions. And, and we're going to dive right in, and I'm going to give you the mechanics of it. And just because you can say I'm part of the body of Christ, and we're not going to doubt that, but we have functions, and, 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 and it's established by God to, for the body of Christ. So you're, if you're saved and born again this morning, you're part of the body of Christ. Now, I will tell you there are clothing on the body of Christ, but the clothing is not the body of Christ. And we're going to deal with this. We're going to deal with the people that just come in here and that are not necessarily the body of Christ. They're just a covering to it, and they are attached to the body of Christ, but they might not be the body of Christ. But we'll talk about that. It's all good. No, no questions that make you raise your eyebrow and say, well, I'm leaving the church again. Well, for the 44th time, you won't leave, so just come on back. So anyway, for all of our new converts, new Christians, it's my responsibility as your pastor to talk to you if you're a new convert. As if you're a new convert, we're going to discuss something today. The next week, we're going to get into some, the same agenda, but a little bit, we're going to go to, to level two in it. As a new convert, where is the best place in the Bible for me to study? I get this asked a lot. I get this asked quite often. As a new convert, where's the best place for me to study in the Bible? And here's my answer every time on the inside. Because we have all studied and memorized the outside of the Bible. It says Holly Bibble. We all know that. So where do we start? I'll tell you where you don't start. You don't start in the book of Revelation. Jeffrey, starting a new convert class in the book of Revelation is like taking Carson and Jeffrey to the slaughterhouse right before you go to Burger King. I don't know why, if anybody in any classroom or any teaching, that if you're a new convert, and I say a new convert, your little spiritual brains have not yet been developed, teaching you to go to Revelation, you're doing a, a, a great injury to yourself because even though Revelation, it's in the Bible, we're not going to get into this, but I will tell you, you'd be better off to stay clear of that because we're, we're, we're not really dealing with facts and principles that may be applicable to for today. It could have been back then, the first church, and it could be for a million years in the future. So where do we start? And the best place I can tell you to start if you're a new convert in the body of Christ is you want to start in Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. And it's called the Beatitudes. There's eight of them. And I list these things as called B, capital B, E, attitudes. Now, the word beatitude is not in the Bible. So you may say, well, where in a wide world of sports do we get the word beatitude? And the definition for beatitude is, is called the word blessed. Supremely blessed or blessed by the supreme one. Okay? So if you go home and you get your concordance and you go home and say, that I don't see the word beatitude in the Bible. There's a reason for that, because it's not there. So you're going to ask yourself, as a new convert, 
then, then where do we come up with this concept? This is the, one of the first of the five discourses of Christ in Matthew. There's five, and this is the first one. And anything that takes first in priority, I think is, is where we get a Greek word for protos. It means priority and rank and, 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 and respect of. So when Jesus hits the ground running, this is the first set of information that we get from him on, on, on a public setting is the Beatitude. Now, I, w- I want to say this to you before we kind of get off into this. We're not going to go far. But this word blessing and makaros is a Greek word for blessing in the New Testament. Blessed are you that are poor in spirit, you're bankrupt, for the kingdom of heaven is yours. And probably on a Wednesday night, I'll take eight Wednesdays, I'll take one a month, and by then we'll be confused, but I'll take each beatitude. But when you read, I don't know, can we show Psalms 1 and 1? Blessed is the man that, that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of the sinners, nor sit in the seed of the scornful. Please leave that up there. This word blessed is a word called ashir. And ashir in the New Testament for the word blessed, sometimes you get the word happy. But that's really a bad translation, being happy. Happy you that you do this. Ashir and makaros means to be envied of. Someone envies what you have. I will tell you, I've been serving the Lord a long time, and I can't tell you that every day of my life I've been happy externally, but I, I, I have had this. I've had a relationship with God, and even though my days have been difficult, but still I have this deep-seated confidence and strength that God supremely has blessed my life. Things may be going in the opposite direction. You're not understanding me. You're, You're associating blessings with things going your way. How many besides me has experienced I'm blessed, but things are not going my way? And I don't care what them TV preachers tell you at 3 a.m. They just want your money. I'm just telling you, there's days you don't want to get out of bed. There's days you don't want to go to work. And there's days you don't want to sit by the guy you're sitting by. But I'm telling you, in spite of how I feel, I know that I'm supremely blessed by God. I know that. Now, as we know, some of you that are new converts here, and for the rest of you that are asleep, that what happens is, he said, you're envied by other people if you want don't walk in the, in the, in the council of the ungodly. Remember we talked about this? There's three stages for your downfall. Number one, you, you, you walk among the ungodly. Number two, you just don't walk past them. Now then you're standing with them. And now three, you're sitting down with them. There's three stages of your, of, of, of your defaulting going back to your own nature. Number one is that you, you're, not walking, you're, not, you're not walking with the council of the ungodly, the wicked. And so if you're not careful, when we first get born again, you hear a dirty joke and you go, I'll just walk right on by. But after a few years, you quit walking on by. Now you're standing listening to it. And a few months later, you, you're not walking by and you're not just standing by. Now that you've taken a bar stool and said, did you hear the one about the priest, the pope, and the rabbit? Now you're telling them. You understand this? So I'm just telling you there's a trap that's laid. But blessed is the man that doesn't walk with the counsel of the ungodly. He doesn't stand in the seat of the sinners. And I know that's contrary to the New Testament, but I'll, we'll deal with this. And number three, that, that he's not sitting in the seat of the scornful. He's telling you that if you live a life of being supremely blessed by God, 
it goes way beyond just being happy and you getting a pay raise and everything is good. Being blessed by God, the Beatitudes is this, no matter where you are and where you go and what kind of condition you're in, we have this confidence, I am supremely blessed by God. And that blows people's mind. So the word makairos and eshir basically has the same meaning, to be envied of. So you say, well, that doesn't even make sense. Well, it, sh it should, because this people are watching you. The, the counsel of the wicked is watching you walk by. The ungodly is watching you as you stand. These people are watching you, and when you can respond and react in a sense of confidence and security and not be moved, then people would say this, I'd like to have what he has. Because nobody needs to teach you how to respond when you won the lottery. We just need some help when we can't pay the electric bill. You understand that? So go back to, to Matthew. So th this whole concept, he said, blessed are you. You're supremely blessed. So you as new converts, this is where you need to start. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7. These Beatitudes, there's eight of them in total. Four is a relationship God dealing with us, and four of them is we dealing with others. It's the cross behind me. It runs in two directions. Vertical, horizontal. God deals with us coming down. The first four, or there's four of them, and the other four is that we dealing with other people. So the Beatitudes, or the Beatitudes, or the attitude that we should have is this, is to live our life that not in the, in the framework of the everything and, and broken promises. And, and in a week or two, I told Gail on the ship, I said, I'm, I'm gonna, I was going to get into it today, but I'm not being trapped by the Word of God. You're, you're being trapped because you read somewhere or somebody told you something in the Bible, but, but it didn't come to pass and it didn't happen and it caught you. You got trapped. Somebody promised you that your life would be perfect. They lied to you. So the idea of this, the Beatitudes, if you're, if you're a new convert, you need to start right here in these Beatitudes, and, and it'll teach you what your attitude ought to be. And so, like I said, probably this week or this month sometime, we are going to, we're going to deal with this. So in the Beatitudes, he's given us a, a, a lesson on, on what we're going to use the word primary uh, steps to education. All eight of them. So the chief goal in, in, in this church or in your Christian walk, the chief goal of what we're trying to do here is called maturity. That's the chief goal here. Now, so if you're new, some of you are, uh, this happened to be about my 33rd year, so I'm, I'm, I'm used to this, but this is the deal. We're, we're, we're not going to pull any new cats out of the hats. There's no surprises. I teach biblical principles. I'm, I'm, I'm going to love you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to correct you. I'm going to do all these things. But the chief goal of my responsibility here at this church is to bring about maturity. The Beatitudes, this is what in chronological order is happening. And I'm going to help you see that. So Jesus is not just spitting out verses and sayings. 
But he does this in a, in a way, in such an order, that we go from primary to adulthood in these eight blessedness of God. See? So what happens is, in maturity, so this is the chief goal of maturity. So the Apostle Paul, before we go any further, he deals with this. I, I want to clear up a very muddy scripture for you. This is found in 1 Corinthians chapter number 14, verse number 20. It's the good old King James. Brethren, be not children in understanding, how be it in malice be children, but in understanding be men. Boy, thank you for shouting me down on that one. Let's read it again. Maybe, maybe it'll excite you a little bit more. It probably won't. Brethren means Adelphus. It means the people of God. Adelphus means a, Adelphus was a, a woman's uterus. We've been born from the same womb of the Holy Spirit. He's not just throwing everybody that comes along into this equation. He's telling you, if you've been born again of the womb of God, the Holy Spirit, be not children in understanding, but in malice be children, but in understanding be men. What in the wide world of sports is he talking about? So here is the, the lexicon answer to this verse. There are three stages to a human growth. Number one, nepiosis is infants. Padia is a toddler. And teleos is a mature man. This is very important because this is nothing new, but this is very important to understand in Scripture. So the Greek lexicon gives us the answer to this verse, and here it is in the original Greek. Don't be a preschooler when it comes to understanding. But in malice, remain an infant. But in thinking and reasoning, be an adult. So leave that up for a moment. The Beatitudes is what I'm trying to accomplish here in this small church. When it comes to education and wisdom and growth, don't be a preschooler. Don't just ask, can you pass out the crayons and say monosyllables? No, I won't. That's why we have children's church. Enter a place in this church that we can go and we can just sing songs and hear about Jesus and don't get into the, yeah, it's called children's church. It's next door. You're welcome to go. When it comes to malice, be an infant. One thing about an infant, they have no recollection of anything. It's amazing. When it comes to malice, somebody's harmed you, somebody said something to you, and I think we're, we, we all get this place where we're super spiritual, we're super smart, but if anybody ever says anything against us, we'll never forgive them. Listen, you are back in square one. When it comes to malice, and if you don't know this, but malice is an external thing. But when it comes to malice being infinite, it means just be quick to forget it. Turn to somebody and say, if you forgot, I'm, I'm, really, I'm still human here. So if, if I've said anything to hurt your feelings, I'm sorry. I may not be really, but I'm sorry if it'll help you. If I said anything from the pulpit that made it rough your feathers, I'm sorry. Three words, get over it. If it's in the Word, get over it. Just because it doesn't suit you, but I'll tell you what, when it comes to education and learning the Word of God, what Jamie said a while ago, we should not be preschoolers. 
And when it comes to people that's hurt us or, or, or impose certain things on us, we should just be infants about it. But when it comes to reasoning, thinking, he said, be an adult. Quit carrying around grudges. Quit being infantiles to education and learning. So through the years, I've learned this. When it comes to understanding the Word of God, I don't want to be a preschooler. When it comes to people's hurt my feelings, not that you have, but in 33 years, I'll tell you, people has tried to take my head off. And you know what? It's all right. It's okay. When I say it's all right, it's okay. Keep, don't, keep in mind, I don't go and say, well, that's okay because you cussed me out. Well, I'd never say that. But I will tell you, if somebody ever done anything to me, don't ever say, well, it's okay. Because when you say it's okay, it's giving them permission to do it again. So if they repent, just say, I forgive you. Don't do it again. But you know what? I've let that thing somewhere in the back closet because I can't function to be the pastor you want me to be as long as I harbor malice in my life. But when it comes to reasoning and thinking, I need to be an adult. And sometimes when we hire new teachers here at the daycare and these kids, oh, you know, they're, they're just like your kids, you know, like a bunch of wild Comanches. And I always tell the teachers, remember, remember, you're the adult, they're the child. Don't get on their level. And I had to do the same thing as pastoring. Not that you're children, but I had to understand we all come in here with mixed emotions and all kinds of stuff, but I have to remember, I'm the adult, and people that want to come in here and start trouble, they are the preschoolers, so I don't have to get on their level. All right? So that's what Paul is teaching us as Jesus is trying to set the example. I was, I was telling somebody the other day, the word kindergarten is, is a great word, kindergarten. Kindergarten is a German word, if you don't know this. It's a wonderful word. Kinder is, means child, and garten is where we get a word for garden. And so the definitions of a kindergarten is this, maturing and developing young children in such a way to prepare them for long years of school, education, and learning, also used in fruit or flower-bearing plants, where we get a word for nursery. The word kindergarten has the same word that Jesus is using here. He said what we're doing here, we're starting with young minds and young plants and young stems and young stalks. And what we're trying to do is prepare them from the, for the long haul. And I want you to hear me loud and clear. When we come in here, I'm not calling us kindergartens at all. I'm just calling us new converts. But this is the deal. We're trying to, to facilitate you for the long haul. We're trying to prepare you for good days and bad days. We're trying to prepare you for things that have come your way that's exciting and things that come your way that you wish you never would have happened. This is what Jesus is teaching us in the Beatitudes. So when you see the word kindergartners, it's not necessarily a bad term. It's the idea is that we're just not shoving them off in a closet. We're teaching them on their level, and we're giving them the basics for many years of education to come. So if you're a new convert, we're going to treat you like a kindergarten. We're not making fun of you at all. But I have to help you in, in your beginning as you begin to grow. So don't let anybody take you into mysterious gospels and don't, don't let anybody take you off into things that will confuse you. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Beatitudes. So here we go. 
Somebody turn that air conditioner on. I, I think somebody turned the heater on, what they did. <laughs> Matthew chapter 5. There, there, the discourse of the first Mount Olivet is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So where, if you're a new convert, where do you start reading? Right here. Right here. The words of Jesus. Right here. Matthew 5. I'm going to give you a summary of what's in Matthew 5. Matthew 5 deals with our motions as believers. What we say, what we do. Okay? There'll be a test after church. If you fail it, you may go to hell, so you better get this right. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are the stair steps of maturity. Matthew 5 deals with our motions, what we say, what we do. Number one, he tells us to be a good example. He tells us righteousness comes only from God. He tells us the benefits of freedom, of forgiveness. He says, don't make promises you won't keep. He says, learn to control your temper. Matthew 5. Matthew 6 deals with our motives. Why we do them. Why we say what we say and why do we do what we do. Matthew 6. Matthew 6 deals with modesty. Honesty in our giving to God. Why we pray. Why and where we fast. Anxieties, worries, and confronting hypocrites and imposters. Now before you jump all over me about naming some names, would you please go read Matthew 6 and you'll, you'll realize that Jesus wasn't kind to everybody. And we're going to say he did it in love while he was taking a whip to them. We're going to say he loved them. Come here, I love you while I just beat the snot out of you. Don't, don't, don't jump on me, my friend. He's dealing with hypocrites and imposters. And the only reason why that I would even mention imposters and hypocrites is because I love you. And I'm doing my very best to keep the shining one out of the garden that would deceive you in the wrong way. That's all this is. So number one, this is your lesson for this week. Matthew chapter 5, your motives, excuse me, your motion, what you do. Matthew chapter 6, why do you do these things? Now for you that are new, you don't know this, but when you talk about fasting and praying, the nation of Israel was only supposed to fast one day a year, the Day of Atonement, one day. Moses set this up. God told him one day a year. By the time Jesus got here, they fasted 105 times a year, twice a week, and then once on atonement. God never told them to fast 104 extra times. It's called the fasting of the Jews, as it was called the feast of the Jews. It was called the, the Jews' Passover. It was no longer called the Lord's fast, Passover. It was called the 
Passover of the Jews. The Jews got a hold of it, they commercialized it, and they put it in the law. And they fasted on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Guess what happened on Tuesdays and Thursdays? It was called market days. That's where everybody came in to market. And it just so happened that the Jews said, when the whole townspeople will come to market on Tuesdays and Thursdays, that would be a great time for us to fast, put on sackcloth, and act like we're really religious. Why do you fast? So here's my answer about fasting. I'll tell you, on the ship, I'm not going to lie to you, I didn't fast one meal. So we've had this big pushes through the years about fasting and praying. I'm not against fasting and praying. I'm just trying to ask you, why do you do it? Why do you do it? Well, I read a book. And the book said if I do it, it would help. Has it helped? No, it's made it worse. Okay. So this, the Sadducees and the Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, listen, we got a question. And here comes John's disciples to Jesus and said this, we fast. that your disciples don't fast. How come? How come we fast 105 times a year and your disciples don't fast any? Today's Tuesday or today's Thursday and we're all fasting except your bunch. How come they're not fasting? And Jesus said this, as long as the bridegroom is with the bride, why should you have to fast? Now, I want to tell you the opposite side to that. When you're out of control, you probably need to fast. When you have a, a gluttonous spirit and you can't control your flesh, you may need to fast a little bit because this fasting won't get God to do what you want him to do. Fasting will get you to do what God wants you to do. Your, your flesh is out of control. But if you're walking with God and you're honoring God and God's blessing you, I'm telling you right now, you don't really have to fast on anything. As long as the bridegroom is with the bride, everything's in good shape. I'm telling you, if you'll just stay close to Jesus, you don't have to worry about this, those other things that seem to be tagged on to you. So why did they fast? They fasted because there was an audience. Have you ever prayed and wondered, prayed out loud and wondered in the back of your mind, I know you don't do this, what time is it? Have you ever prayed out loud and you're wondering, boy, I hope this guy next door me can hear me because I can really pray. I'm just asking. Do I raise my hands? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd raise them while I was playing that piano, but you ain't no telling what would happen when I let go. But I will tell you, in, in the realm that I was raised in, there's a people that speak in tongues and run around the building, and I'm not, I'm not making fun or making light, but I will tell you, if I ask them the question, why are you doing that? Well, that's, that's the way we've always done it. Well, why? See, what happens is the motive why we do certain things, because I will tell you, I will tell you, now don't laugh at this, but this, my grandson Alex, He's the only grandchild that cares if I live or die. He's, that's it. But let's say my grandson, I hadn't seen him in, in about eight days, and I really got to missing him. I told Gail, I said, man, I miss that little booger. And when I saw him for the first time, I would say, I saw him at the house, I said, come here, Alex. Papa wants to hug you. And the first thing, he jumps up, and like that kid on Home Alone, he goes, ah! And he runs off 
in the backyard away from me. And he's just running around the backyard. What are you doing? I'm just excited to see you. That's why I'm a half a mile from you. You're missing the point when you come to church. God don't want to chase you down. God said, come here. I want to love on you. Come here. It's hard to hit a moving target. Just come here. Let me love you. Let me just hold you. Why do we do what we do? So the Pharisees, they fasted and they prayed because they had an audience. Their motive was wrong. And I want to tell you from, from the bottom of my heart, whether you agree with me, it's okay. We're not all going to see it eye to eye, but this is what I want to tell you, and my wife is sitting right here, and she'd never lie. My motive is good. I love you. I want you. I need you. And, and if I say things that may be trying to correct you or help you or instruct you, it's not because I'm mad at you or it's not because I happen to be the guy up front. It's because my motive is to feed the sheep of God. And that's it. And the third one, Matthew chapter 7, which is really the best one of all of them, it's called maturity. So we go from our motion we go to our motives, why we do certain things. And now then, chapter 7 deals with our maturity. In Matthew chapter 7, you're going to find verses that will say things like being disrespectful of godly things. Making wrong choices. Beware of false teachings and building our lives upon Christ our rock rather than the ever-shifting sands of man's religion, opinions, or emotions. When you really begin to understand Matthew chapter 7, now then you begin to understand maturity. So one of the great concepts of this, and I don't want to turn there, but I'm going to give you a quick summary because some of you know this, but some of you knew you don't know this. When it, when it deals with, he said the man had a, there was two men that had a house and they were going to build a house and, and, and one built upon rock and one built upon sand. And, and we know this. And they said the man that built upon the rock, it stood and we endured the storm, but the man that dug it upon the sand or built upon the sand, the winds came and it, it blew it to pieces. Matthew chapter 7. But Luke tells you the key to it. Brad, Luke tells you how this happened. If you've been here longer than two or three years, you've heard me talk about this, but these two houses that are built, they're not built a half a mile apart. They're built side by side. One is sand and one is rock. And the idea you think that one is nothing but a sand pit and the other one is rock, and that's not what Luke says. The Bible says that they both had the same terrain on top but the other one, he dug down until he hit rock. So when you understand that the man built this house upon the rock, you're thinking, he said, hey, here's a rock ledge. I think I'll build my house. That's not what the Greek says. The Greek says it's the both the same topical surface. And one said, well, this is convenient. I'll just build a house here and you know what happens. 
But the other one said this, even though that we had the same surface, but if I build a house, I'm smart enough to know that if something comes along, it won't last. So what I'll do, Luke says that he dug down until he hit rock. I said a while ago that my wife and I had been through a lot of storms, but here's the key. Watch this. I've learned to dig down. And with every shovel, if it moves, it's got to go. If you're building your Christian walk on a person, that person is subject to shift and move. If you're building your Christian walk on the denomination or a man's opinion or someone's emotion, I'm telling you, you can stick a shovel in that and it will move. And if it moves, it's got to go. Ask me how I know that. I'm glad you asked. Because the first part of our Christian walk and first few years of this church, I built it on people. I made the mistake. And I thought they're kind and they're generous and they're good looking and they're talented. And, and surely they ought to know they've been a board member of other churches and blah, 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 blah. And little did I realize they were moving and shaking and, and everything I tried to build on them moved until we figured out that I've got to dig down. And once you just get down past anything that's subject to move, you'll hit bedrock. And upon that, you can build your house. So for you new converts, and for you that are barely in the church and barely in the walk of Christ, here's the deal. Don't build your life upon things that can move and shift upon religions, opinions, or emotions. Don't do it. Dig down. Take a shovel and dig it. And if the dirt moves, get rid of it. Keep it digging until you hit bedrock, the rock of Christ. And upon that, no matter what you build, it will stand. It's the truth. So this morning, that's it. The Beatitudes, levels of maturity. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that's where you start. Our motion, our motives, our maturity. And I'm just glad to report to you after 30-something years, I'm a little bit more mature than I was 30 years ago. And on your behalf, thank you for being a mature body of believers. Thank you for that. Agree? Amen. Father, this morning that you sent your son Jesus not only to be the, the savior of the world, but you put him in a place that he would be called counselor. Someone who gives us wise counsel, intelligent information. We're not here stranded trying to figure it out on our own. You've laid out a chart. You've given us the information. You've given us your holy word. So help us as students of God's Word that we would take the time and retract all key statements that you've made to help us in our kindergarten stage. Young tender plants that are being prepared to bear fruit in years to come. So this morning, 
It's not necessarily what we do, Father. It's not, but it's why we do them. And why we do them will bring maturity to our life and help us to grow in the likeness of Christ. Help us not to be preschoolers in learning. Help us to be infant when people harm us. And help us to be adults in reason and thinking that we may be a wonderful reflection of the image of an invisible God. I believe in 2022, this morning, that if we ever need to be a church that is exemplifying and reflecting the Word of God in balance and in harmony and unity, I think it's today. So Father, help us to do exactly, to finish the work that Christ began in Jesus' name. Amen. If you believe that this morning, give the Lord a praise offering, huh? God is good. Stand with me if you would, please. Turn about two people, say, listen, I love you. I'm telling you. I don't know about you. You don't have to say amen, but if you've ever been in an immature church, it's very damaging. If you've ever been a part of immature leaders, an immature church, the, the emotions, the opinions, the frustrations, the claws that will come out, it's, it's very brutal. We're very fortunate here on 4th Street to have a very growing and maturing body of people. And I'm very thankful for that. Communion service, if you'll please come this morning. We're going to celebrate communion for the first time in 2022. When you go home this week, read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, please. Get you a translation that you can understand. The mercies of God are upon us. He's quick to forgive. He's, he's long-suffering and He's patient. He's kind and He's good. And this is what I say to you this morning. If you ever are going to become what God has intended you to become, We've got to be good students of his word. He's already said it. Father, this morning we celebrate the cup and we celebrate the bread. Your body that was broken. Upon the cross you took our shame, our, our guilt, our unworthiness, our sicknesses. You took it to the cross. Thank you for the cup because the cup signifies your blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sin. So this year, we begin the right way. We're going to remember you. Father, forgive us of our sins this morning. 
Help us to be good students of your word, that we can be good reflectors of your righteousness, that we can go on to be mature people of God in mind, body, and spirit, that we can help those along the way. In Jesus' name, amen.